0: Welcome to the Kings and Queens podcast with your host, Johnny Langton. Just before we start, I'd like to point you in the direction of my other podcast, Politics for A-level politics and beyond. You can find a link on uh, the information for this episode. Also, if you're enjoying these episodes, please give us a rating on your platform. Thank you. In the words of the Prince of Wales, I don't mind praying to the Eternal Father, But I must be the only man in the country afflicted with an eternal mother. He had to wait 59 years to become king. Though only nine years, the king also lent his name to an era. The Edwardian era was distinct in its social and cultural change, with a rejection of certain Victorian values. The era saw significant social mobility, reform, yet also hedonism. In the words of W. B. Yeats, everybody got down off their stilts. He was perhaps the final monarch to hold true political power. The power and influence was held over the great monarchs of Europe, his relatives, who would soon succumb to republicanism, to socialism, and to war. This is Edward the Seventh. Prince Edward was born at Buckingham Palace on the 9th of November, 1841. He was the second child and first son of Queen Victoria and Prince Albert. Just a month after his birth, he was made Prince of Wales, a role he would hold for a then-record 59 years. When he was 17, he was created a Knight of Garter. a Knight of St. Thistle and St. Patrick followed. His mother wrote, Our little boy is a wonderfully strong and large child with very large blue eyes, a finely formed but somewhat large nose, and a pretty little mouth. I hope and pray he may be like his dearest papa. He is expected to be a new Albert. From the start, he is compared unfavourably. Victoria suffers postnatal depression, and this damages their relationship. He wasn't worthy of a name Albert, so known as Bertie, for now. He was also unfavourably compared to his elder sister Vicky. who was somewhat of a child prodigy, learning Latin at four years old. Bertie pales in comparison. Like his mother, he embarked upon a strenuous educational regime designed by his father. Edward wasn't stupid, he just wasn't academic. He came to hate book learning, and would react to tutoring with angry outbursts and even attacking his tutors. His isolation was reminiscent of his own mother's under her mother and John Conroy. One of his tutors, Canon Birch, advised his regime be reduced after becoming friendly with Edward, so Albert released him from his service. Frederick Gibbs was strict, humorless, and intense, so Edward continued to suffer. Victoria wrote, Poor Bertie, alas. I feel very sad and anxious about him. He is so idle and so weak. I cannot think him with that painfully small and narrow head, those immense speeches and total want of chin. His treatment would make him rebellious. The Hanoverian taste for mischief had reasserted itself on the royal family, something his parents had deeply feared. When a 15-year-old Edward tried to grab and kiss a servant girl during a visit to Koenigswinter, William Gladstone described the incident as this squalid debauch, a paltry affair, an unworthy indulgence. At the age of 18, he entered the University of Oxford at Christchurch College, before transferring to Trinity College, Cambridge, for his third year, becoming the first future monarch to attend either university. While at Oxford, he befriended Frederick Johnston, a member of the notorious Bullingdon Club, and embarked on a life of excess smoking, drinking and gluttony, despite his chaperone attempting to keep a watchful eye over the teen. One of his friends, Henry Chaplin, nicknamed Magnifico, had his own gourmet chef whose food Edward would regularly and gladly indulge. He never excelled as a student, was lacking in self-confidence despite being free of his parents' educational strictures. Instead, he learned of gambling, horses and the gilded life of the English aristocrat. One story told saw Edward and Magnifico meeting an old peasant on a country road, pulling up her skirt and stuffing a five pound note in her bloomers. Edward would travel to London and indulge in the brothels, the opium dens, the boxing, and the dog and cockfights. By one estimate, there were 80,000 prostitutes in London alone. Due to photography being in its infancy, Edward had the luxury of going about his business with relative anonymity, often riding in cabs. He fostered disappointments in his parents. This would contribute to his rebellious nature, He was largely set free from the watchful eyes of his parents during foreign visits where he would let loose, like his Georgian forebears. In 1860, he embarked on a four-month tour of Canada and the United States, becoming the first heir to cross the Atlantic. He inaugurated the Victoria Bridge in Montreal and laid a foundation stone at Parliament Hill in Ottawa. He was present to see Charles Blondin cross Niagara Falls by tightrope. He was the first heir to meet a US President when he met George Buchanan, staying in the White House for three days. While there, he visited the tomb of George Washington. Prayers were offered for the royal family in churches in the United States for the first time since 1776. The trip boosted diplomatic relations and trust between the UK and the US. It had been less than 80 years since the American War of Independence, and less than 50 years since the British had occupied Washington and burned down the very house in which Edward was the honoured guest. Back home, a cure for Bertie's fall had been decided before Albert's death, the sanctity of an early marriage to a sensible wife who would keep tabs on him and stop him straying. Seven suggestions were listed in the Times. Alexandra of schleswig holstein sonderberg glucksburg known as Alex, was chosen. She was fifth on the Times list. Their meeting in September 1861 was orchestrated. He was sent to Speyer in the Rhineland, under the preference of watching military manoeuvres, but the trip was engineered for him to meet Alex. Relations were friendly from the start though scandal would bring the royal family into crisis management as Edward's philandering caught up with him. He had gone to Ireland to join the Grenadier guards months prior, a plan to introduce some discipline into his life. There, fellow officers had hidden Nelly Clifton <laughs> naked in the prince's bed, and he had become enchanted. News reached the papers, and Nelly gladly received the moniker Princess of Wales. When Albert discovered the relationship he said, the consequences for this country and for the world would be too dreadful. It is the deepest pain I have yet felt in this life. He went straight to see Edward at Cambridge. They took a long walk in the rain to discuss his degeneracy. Both were drenched upon their return. Albert caught a chill. A few months later, he was dead the age of 42, following a decline in health. Doctors had suggested a recent mental excitement may have been the cause, giving Victoria more reason to believe Albert had been killed by this dreadful business. She wrote, I never can nor shall look at him again without a shudder. Despite the scandal. Edward married Alex on the 20th of March 1863. They settled in Marlborough House in London and Sandringham House in Norfolk. The couple went on to have six children, Albert, George, Louise, Victoria, Maud and Alexander. Their youngest son, Alexander, born in 1871, lived just 24 hours. Edward insisted on placing his body in the coffin, himself. Their eldest, Albert, known as Eddie, became a subject of much speculation regarding his mental health and sexuality. He was unable to concentrate for any length of time. All sorts of cures were attempted to fix the young man, described as abnormally dormant. He was sent to the army, but his instructors found him incapable of managing even simple parade drills. He was rumoured for many years to be the true identity of Jack the Ripper, after fathering a daughter by a Catholic prostitute, resulted in him murdering those with the knowledge, though there is little evidence of this. Edward and Alex tried to marry him off to a sensible down-to-earth wife, similar to Victoria for Edward, but for very different reasons. Mary of Tech was selected because she was disciplined and dutiful, However, a month before the wedding was due to take place, Eddie died of the flu in January 1892, at the age of 28. Edward and Alex were ill with grief. To lose our eldest son, he wrote, is one of those calamities one can never really get over. It had no doubt crossed a few minds, however, that this was probably for the best. Victoria herself believed that had the crown passed to Eddie, the monarchy would have come to an end. Eddie's younger brother George moved to second in line to the throne. A year following Eddie's death, George married Mary of Teck instead. When Edward and Alex were engaged, Edward's sister Vicky had said, I love him with all my heart and soul, but I do not envy his wife. Alex was under no illusions, and Bonking Bertie, as he was known, and later Edward the Caresser, continued to womanise. Edward liked Alex and thought her charming and pretty, but admitted he did not feel ready for marriage. Because Victoria refused to give Edward any real responsibility, he continued to be a prince of pleasure. His mother became more and more convinced that Edward was totally unsuitable to succeed her. Edward lived a high-society lifestyle in the so-called Marlborough House set, his social circle. Money was more important than class. History has connected no less than 55 women to Edward over the course of his life. Edward's affairs were kept as discreet as possible and were carefully directed by his staff and friends. When couples were invited to country retreats with the royal pair, The guests were given adjoining rooms to give Edward the option of a midnight visit. But what if someone had taken his fancy, whom he didn't share a bedroom wall? practice called corridor creaking became a feature of parties and retreats. Names of people would be helpfully written on bedroom doors to allow them to make it clear they wanted a midnight visit. Alex often hosted these parties, but wouldn't get involved. He would also travel, picking up mistresses in various cities. He cavorted openly with opera singers and actresses. He would collect semi-pornographic pictures of popular celebrities. He would often be discreet, but just as often, not. He would go on trips with his mistresses and kiss them in public. Many of his affairs were openly acknowledged by Alex herself. Bets would be placed on Edward's next mistress, and how long she would last. Despite his infidelities, Edward was popular. While he had outbursts of temper, they were short-lived, and after he had let himself go, he would smooth matters by being especially nice. Disraeli described him as informed, intelligent, and of sweet manner his friends liked him. His mistresses often saw attention as a royal honour. Seemingly the only person he failed to impress was his mother. The Queen, who would be kept fully informed of his antics, would pen a steady stream of letters criticising his life and the dreadful example he was setting. In 1870, Lord Morton's wife Harriet confessed to her affairs including with the prince, after fears her young child would have venereal disease. Unlike other aristocrats who turned a blind eye to Edward bedding their wives, Lord Mordant commenced proceedings for divorce. It was the first time a Prince of Wales was required to give evidence. His mother, Victoria, defended her son adamantly. Divorce wasn't granted, when Harriet's lawyers used an insanity defence resulting in her being committed to an asylum until the end of her life. Edward was off the hook. He would not be declared an adulterer in court, but not before a media-feeding frenzy engulfed the royal family. Edward was subjected to booing, hissing and catcalling when out in public. In 1871, he fell seriously ill with typhoid. His eulogies had been written by the press. Then he recovered. Victoria's reputation had been poor until this moment, due to her ten years of mourning and neglect of public duty. Both Edward and Victoria received public sympathy, helping boost their popularity. Daisy Greville, another mistress, was an extravagant socialite, she had a railway station built to be closer to her mansion for guests to attend her parties. She inspired the song, Daisy Daisy. In 1876, when a friend of Edward's, Lord Aylesford, threatened to go to court over his wife's adultery, over an affair with a Lord Blandford, Edward was hesitant to support him, despite calling Blandford the greatest blackguard alive. Why? To avoid more press attention, of course, but also because he had sent her more than a couple of compromising letters. In reaction to his refusal, Blanford's fiery brother, Randolph Churchill, father of Winston, threatened to publish Edward's love letters. Edward was also alleged to have been intimate with Churchill's wife. Churchill then told Edward's wife of his infidelities. An enraged Edward challenged Churchill to a duel on the north coast of France. Churchill dismissed the challenge as bravado, which it was. Besides, duels were illegal. Talks grew as to whether Edward was fit to inherit the throne. His mother had doubts whether his son could prove effective and popular. Nevertheless, the Queen and Alex stood behind Edward, and a few public appearances as a happily married couple was enough for Lord Aylesford to drop his plans for a divorce. Stories of mistresses were kept quiet, but the media would stir and publish, some evidently true, some salacious. Not all of his scandals involved his infidelities. In 1890, Edward and friends were playing an illegal card game, Baccarat. During the game, several players accused an extinguished army officer William Gordon Cumming of Cheating, a high crime in high British society. To avoid a scandal, Cumming was persuaded to sign a document saying he would never play cards again, effectively admitting guilt. He signed under fierce protest, claiming innocence. The incident was kept quiet. Or so they thought. The story got out. It was Daisy Greville who let the story slip. Cumming was receiving anonymous letters revealing the gossip spreading of the so-called Baccarat scandal. He received the nickname, The Babbling Brook. Cumming decided to clear his name in court. If the accusations weren't withdrawn, he would sue for slander. Edward could potentially be subpoenaed as a witness. Cumming refused to back down. The following year the case opened, Edward entered the witness box. While prosecutors aggressively cross-examined Coming, they went easy on the heir apparent. Yet one man on the jury blurted out the key question. What was your Royal highness's opinion about the charges? Edward replied, I felt no other course was open to me but to believe what I was told. The answer was lame and he looked a fool. However, it turned the case against Cumming. He was found guilty, his social life was in tatters, and he was banished from the British army. Edward's reputation took another dive. He was seen as weak, slippery, a poor role model, and a keeper of bad company. The news reached the papers as far as the continent. The French press suggested he was about to agree to pass up his position as heir apparent to his eldest son. While he undertook public duties on behalf of his mother, he was excluded from any real initiation into the affairs of state. He wasn't informed of any cabinet proceedings until he was over 50. He may have seen government summaries, but never the originals. He was prevented from acting as her deputy until her final few years, though Gladstone would secretly send Edward documents when he was Prime Minister. What Royal duties Edward did have, he made the most of. He pioneered the idea of royal public appearances at home and abroad, the typical royal appearance that we know today. In 1862, for the first time, a royal photographer was taken on tour. He opened the Thames Embankment in 1871 and the Mersey Tunnel in 1876. In 1900, He was a victim of an attempted assassination by 15-year-old anarchist Jean-Baptiste Sipideau in protest of the Boer War. He fired shots at Edward while he was boarding a train to Copenhagen. He missed, though it was a close call. The boy was acquitted on account of his age. Edward became king of the United Kingdom and Ireland on the 22nd of January 1901, upon the death of his mother, at which point the longest reigning monarch in British history. By right of a throne, he also became Emperor of India. He was 59 years old, the longest serving heir apparent in history, until Charles III. His 48-inch waist made him look rather regal, like Henry VIII. He chose to reign under the name of Edward VII, instead of Albert, the name his mother had intended for him to use, declaring that he did not wish to undervalue the name of Albert and diminish the status of his father, with whom the name should stand alone. He moved his mother's belongings into storage and dismantled Albert's rooms, which had been preserved like a shrine since the day of his death, forty years before. He donated Osborne House to the Navy against his mother's wishes, and continued to reside at Sandringham. He personally smashed John Brown busts around the royal palaces. He also commissioned the Victorian Memorial at the end of the Mall in London. The British people were at best sceptical, and at worst anxious about Edward. They were not expecting great things. Comparisons were made to George IV, a deeply unpopular Hanoverian predecessor, Rudyard Kipling called him a corpulent voluptuary of no importance. He proved a pleasant surprise. Like his father, he was an extremely hard worker. His finances were stable. It was exceedingly rare for an heir to ascend who wasn't in debt. They were carefully managed by such financiers as the Rothschild family. After decades of having an inactive monarch, He worked hard to remove the monarchy's staid and dormant image. He revitalised ceremonies such as the State Opening of Parliament and the Trooping of the Colour, which had diminished in royal importance during his mother's decades of mourning. He founded new honours, including the Order of Merit for contributions to the Arts and Sciences. He endowed the King's Fund, helping finance London's hospitals. He ordered the national anthem to be played 80 beats a minute to increase the tempo. He had a reputation for being unfailingly polite to everyone, no matter their class, race or gender. He was rather ahead of his time. He was passionate about representing all people. Keir Hardy, a Republican socialist and founder of the Labour Party, recovering from an operation received a sympathetic letter from the king. When criticised, he responded, You don't understand. I am king of all the people. He helped found the Royal College of Music, opening the institution back in 1883. He said, Class can no longer stand apart from class. I claim for music that it produces that union of feeling which I much desire to promote. He called out prejudice when he saw it, and intervened when he saw the brutality and contempt shown to Indians by British officers. Because a man has a black face and a different religion from our own, there is no reason why he should be treated as a brute. This was a period of popular British colonialism. His comments were very progressive. He would openly socialise with Jews, including the Rothschilds. His was the only court in Europe with Jews, something he was criticised for, with anti-Semitism rife at the time. He said the N-word was disgraceful, despite its common use. He was berated by Kaiser Wilhelm about supposedly supporting Japan over Russia. According to Wilhelm, the British were committing race treason, and the Yellow Peril would soon overrun Moscow and then Christendom. Edward called the Japanese intelligent, brave, and chivalrous. Despite Kipling's misgivings, Edward was proving to be a very popular monarch. His coronation day was set for the 26th of June 1902. Guests from around the world were invited. However, a few days before, he fell ill with peritonitis. An emergency operation was necessary to save the king's life, and he reluctantly agreed to postpone the coronation to August. Joseph Lister, famed for popularising the use of carbolic acid as an antiseptic, and administering anaesthetics during the birth of Victoria's daughter, removed an infected abscess from the king's stomach. Within 24 hours, the king was sitting up in bed, smoking a cigar. Appendix surgery would become a routine operation henceforth, due to developments in medicine following germ theory. Antiseptics and anaesthetics were now available. It made the life saving surgery possible with favourable odds. Many foreign dignitaries did not hang around and missed the coronation. It therefore became an imperial affair. The spectacle was now planned to reflect the influence and culture of the British Empire an empire at the height of its power. Prime ministers of British dominions and 31 rulers of the Indian princely states. Indeed, princes were summoned from a realm that stretched from Afghanistan to China to India. Jewelry worn at the final banquet was said to be the greatest display of precious stones in history. Yet, true to his word of representing all of his people, 500,000 dinners were made for the citizens of London. It included a tin of Roundtree's chocolate, although a better tin was given to the thousands of stewards who were seen as being a greater influence socially than the poor. Edward personally contributed £30,000 to the cost. As was tradition of coronations, there were several gaffes. The aged, half-blind Archbishop of Canterbury required the prayers to be printed in large letters so he could read them, but he still misread them. He dropped the crown, and then placed it on Edward's head, the wrong way round. Edward broke custom, came forward, and kissed his heir, George, on both cheeks, overwhelmed with emotion. His mistresses were sat in a box. Boer commanders were invited, just months after a peace settlement was reached. Edward Elgar wrote the Coronation Ode for the special occasion. Words were added to what became Land of Hope and Glory at the suggestion of Edward himself. His lifestyle continued. He was naturally attracted to fun-loving, pleasure-seeking, high-society types. He still visited Bayeritz in France, to the so-called Beach of the Kings, and spa-town Marienbad in former Austria-Hungary annually. Though he would usually lose a few pounds, the real reason to visit was the grand society ladies who would frequent the spa. He visited Paris regularly. He would frequent the Moulin Rouge, Le Chabonet, and its Hindu chamber where his coat of arms was emblazoned above the bed. The chamber was fitted with a copper bathtub that would fill with champagne. He attended balls, galas, and garden parties. London saw royalty enjoy itself for the first time since George IV. He would host enormous banquets, turtle soup, salmon steak, chicken, mutton, snipe filled with goose liver, fruits, ices, caviar and oysters, accompanied by champagne and brandy. Cigars and cigarettes would be passed around, Edward himself could get through 12 cigars and 20 cigarettes per day. He started fashion trends, leaving buttons undone on your waistcoat or blazer was an Edward trend. He had done so due to his large girth. He also popularised tweed, Homburg hats and Norfolk jackets. Black ties instead of white tie and tails. Rather than a winged collar, he wore the stand-up, turned-down shirt collar worn almost universally today. Royalty, after decades of Victoria, was once again fashionable. Edward was the first member of the royal family to buy a car, a 1900 Daimler Tonneau, 24 horsepower. He was the first man in the UK to top 60 miles per hour. He was a regular to the shooting season in England. He was wrapped up in the new craze of motoring, and of course enjoyed cards. Sandringham time until 1936 was thirty minutes earlier than Greenwich Mean Time to provide more daylight time for shooting because of Edward's hobby. He put a golf course at Windsor and a bowling alley at Sandringham. He loved horse racing and steeplechasing. His horses won all the major horse races. Ambush the second, winning the Grand National. Many sports were now attracting huge crowds. A hundred and twelve thousand spectators went to the 1901 FA Cup Final. In 1908, London hosted the Olympic Games. The Italians had poured out after Vesuvius erupted. It was the longest games ever, lasting six months, and had a budget of £15,000. Edward also introduced Sunday Roasts, popularising eating roast beef and potatoes with horseradish and Yorkshire pudding. This was a light Sunday meal for Edward. Indeed, Edward grew rather sensitive about his weight. When a drunk friend called him fat at a party, he walked out. Another nickname of Edward's was Tom tum for his appetite and expanding belly. He'd have five large meals a day, a big breakfast, lunch, and often twelve-course dinners. He would go to bed with a cold chicken, and it would always be bare the next morning. In 1899, the British went to war with the South African Republic and the Orange Free State, together known as the Boers, for influence over South Africa. With 200,000 troops, the British should have had no problem defeating 60,000 Boers, yet elusive guerrilla tactics proved very effective. The Brits' most famous defeat came in 1900, when 2,000 troops, mostly from Liverpool, scampered up the spy on cop, a hill, under the cover of darkness, in order to gain a vantage point from which they could shoot down at the boars below. Unfortunately, when dawn broke, they found themselves exposed to the boar guns from the surrounding hilltops, higher than their cop. Despite recently switching from their red uniforms to khaki, the Brits were still sitting ducks a young war correspondent, Winston Churchill, described the scene. Men were staggering along alone, or supported by comrades, or crawling on hands and knees. The splinters and fragments of shells had torn and mutilated in the most ghastly manner. Among the desperate stretcher-bearers in the ambulance corps was one Mahatma Gandhi. In 1906, Liverpool Football Club won their second First Division title, after which they named their new stand the Spy on Cop, in memory of the local men who had died on the hilltop. Boer success drove British commander Lord Kitchener into using more repressive measures to get the upper hand. Boer farms were burned, livestock looted, and women and children concentrated into camps along the railway lines. Surrounded by barbed wire, these camps were occupied by 24,000 Boers. An estimated 14,000 died as a result of wretched conditions and the spread of dysentery, measles and enteric fever. The Boers themselves were no saints. Their Afrikaner descendants would enforce and extend the brutal system of racial segregation known as Apartheid, which would darken South African history for decades. Following the failings of the Second Boer War, army reform was deemed an urgent priority after it took four years to defeat a bunch of farmers. A total redesign of army command led to the creation of a territorial force in 1908 trained for home defence, an expeditionary force trained for major war, and an officer's training corps was established to train real, skilled officers instead of aristocrats. Edward played a very active role in encouraging military and naval reforms, pressing for reform of the army medical service and the modernisation of the home fleet. His support for the reforms did much to avert British unpreparedness for what was to follow in the reign of his son. Under Victoria, the Empire embraced one-fifth of the land area of the globe. The population was 400 million, three-quarters of which were Indian. They also operated the world's largest navy. British cities were the most prosperous in Europe. Britain was both the largest importer and largest exporter in the world. 80% of the world's trade was carried on British ships. It was the world's most urbanised and industrial country. It also had the world's lowest agricultural population, importing 50% of its food. Imperial confidence was reflected in the music of Edward Elgar, the poetry of Rudyard Kipling, and the portrait of John Sargent. Yet British supremacy was beginning to be challenged. Industrial competition was growing by the turn of the century. The United States was drawing on a global market, in raw materials. The British were being overtaken by the French, the Americans and the Germans in education and innovation, including in automobiles and cinema. In 1903 the Wright brothers made the first sustained flight in a controlled aircraft, marking the beginning of the pioneer era of aviation. Edward was very interested in foreign affairs, due to the amount of monarchies in Europe He held a prominent role, as he was related to nearly every one of them. Britain had been isolated from Europe for a long time, particularly after the Boer War and the war in Tibet, where they had become more unpopular. Britain was keen to build alliances. Edward's fluency in German and French helped him during his many diplomatic visits, in particular in France. Of his own volition, Edward embarked on state visit to France in nineteen oh three. It was risky. Ministers weren't keen. He was met with jeers and cries of Vive Labour. He impressed the French with his geniality and his carefully worded, yet improvised speeches. He was nicknamed Peacemaker. Upon leaving he was met with cheers and vive Edward. Vive l'Angleterre. Britain's splendid isolation from the continent had come to an end, with some future catastrophic consequences. After intense negotiations, Britain formed an alliance with France, two countries that had waged war intermittently for close to a thousand years, signed the Entente Cordiale, ruling out any future war between the nations. Britain had linked its destiny faithfully with France. Edward also improved relations with another nephew, Tsar Nicholas II. It led to Russia joining the Entente in 1907. In contrast, relations with nephew Wilhelm were difficult. Wilhelm resented the British and their empire, and was convinced Germany deserved her time in the sun. Wilhelm's paranoia grew. He felt he was being circled. And Germany continued to arm rapidly. Edward became more distrustful of his emperor-nephew. At home, in 1906, the Liberals won their greatest electoral victory, winning 400 seats under Henry Campbell Bannerman. He was the first man to be officially called Prime Minister previously officially known as the first Lord of the Treasury. The Conservatives received just 157 seats, and the new Labour Party received 29 seats. Several heart attacks and the loss of his wife led to the elderly Bannerman making way for Herbert Asquith. Asquith's government was bolstered by a young former Tory, Winston Churchill, as Trade Secretary, and David Lloyd George, as Chancellor. They became the radicals of a Liberal Party. A third of volunteers for the Boer War had been rejected due to poor physical condition. It had shocked the establishment. There were worries about the continued growth and strength of the Empire. This had a considerable impact. It led to researchers Booth and Roundtree publishing poverty reports. of Londoners were found to be living in abject poverty. Maud Pember Reeves, originally set out to prove poverty was caused by people wasting money on drink. She found that workers were struggling to live on just £1 a week. The findings led to the Liberal reforms. It laid the foundations of the welfare state. The new government introduced an old age pension of 5 shillings for all over the age of 70. Though very few people who relied on a pension lived to such an age, it was a cheap commitment. Though in the long term, with such social measures life expectancy would shoot up and would then become a huge expense. Free school meals and medical inspections were introduced. National insurance helped the sick and unemployed and compensation was given to those injured at work. The Children's Act made it illegal to sell alcohol, tobacco and fireworks to children. Trade unions were liberated from suits for damages following strikes, a big concession for the Labour Party after allying with the Liberals. As the suffragettes began to gather pace, Edward made it clear he did not support suffrage for women, and also opposed Irish Home Rule. He was angered by Gladstone's son, Herbert, the Home Secretary, When he planned to permit Roman Catholic priests and vestments to carry the host through London, and when he appointed two ladies to serve on a royal commission on divorce law, Edward responded, "Divorce could not be discussed with delicacy or decency in the company of women." Edward's final year saw Britain embroiled in a constitutional crisis, when the conservative majority in the Lords refused to pass the Liberal government's budget of 1909. There were 555 separate divisions' votes. At one point, Churchill voted in his pyjamas. In his budget speech, Chancellor Lloyd George said, This is a war budget. It is for raising money to wage implacable warfare against poverty and squalidness. I cannot help hoping and believing that before this generation has passed away, we shall have advanced a great step towards that good time when poverty and the wretchedness of human degradation, which always follow in its camp, will be as remote to the people of this country as the wolves which once infested its forests. The budget would see a shift towards more direct taxation and focus on capacity to pay with an overall aim of redistributing wealth. Income tax was raised to 6% and death duties to 15%. There were taxes on land, petrol and duties on tobacco and alcohol. It was clear that the super-rich were being targeted. Lloyd George was said to revel in the stinging criticism of the rich and enjoyed dishing the dukes. Amid criticism of the cut to defence expenditure, and a reduction of the number of dreadnoughts in production from six to four, in the shadow of Germany's rapid armaments programme, Lloyd George argued that each duke costs more to run than two dreadnoughts, and was less easy to scrap. The budget passed through the commons. The custom was that the lords would always accept finance bills, as the budget needed accepting for the government to govern. However, the budget was overwhelmingly rejected by an overwhelmingly conservative House of Lords. 350 out of 425 Lords voted against. Lloyd George dismissed the unelected aristocrats as 500 men chosen at random from among the unemployed. The Lords claimed a spiteful Lloyd George was motivated by class hatred. Amid a flurry of radical and antagonising speeches made by Lord George and Winston Churchill, Edward tried to persuade Conservatives to pass the bill, but he failed. Asquith asked Edward to create hundreds of new peers in order to pass it. Edward then encouraged Asquith to get a mandate for the budget, so Asquith called an election specifically on the budget in January 1910. Turnout was very high, 87%. It resulted in a hung parliament. Asquith was returned in a minority government, relying on support from the Irish Parliamentary Party and the Labour Party. Asquith again pushed for new peers. The Lords now feared for their own survival and duly passed the budget in April 1910. With Asquith now on the front foot, he was keen to reform the Lords to prevent this happening again. Edward insisted another election was required to receive a mandate, as the last election was for the budget. The battle over reform continued. Edward would not be there to witness it. His health had been in decline. He suffered a heart attack in Bayreuth. He had also suffered from acute bronchitis and emphysema, due to his heavy smoking and terrible diet. Even until the very end of his life, he refused to stop working. On the 6th of May, 1910, he died at the age of 68, after suffering from heart failure. On his deathbed, Alex called for Alice Keppel, his last notable mistress. He was buried on the 20th of May, in St. George's Chapel, Windsor. J.B. Priestley testified to the King's extraordinary popularity. The most popular since Charles II, he had a zest for pleasure, but a real sense of duty. Lord Esher described him as kind and debonair, not undignified, but too human. When he died, his body lay in state. No tickets were sold, so every man regardless of class race or creed, had to wait in line. The line was twelve person deep for seven miles. Half a million citizens filed past his body. His funeral was the last great assemblage of royalty in history, and the last before many were deposed in the aftermath of the First World War. The Edwardian summer was retrospectively nicknamed, In reality, there was a sense of foreboding. Edward himself, at the time of his death, felt war was inevitable. Anxiety was spreading. There was a growing fear of a belligerent Germany. A Germany that had overtaken the industrial power of Britain. Edward died as the shadow of war loomed over Europe. Thank you for listening. Join us next time. For George V. If you have any questions or any comments to make, please get in touch. You can email the Kings and Queens Podcast gmail.com. We're on Twitter, KingsQueensPod, Instagram KingsQueensPodcast, and on Facebook as well, The Kings and Queens Podcast. Again, if you like what you hear, please give us a rating on your platform. Thank you for listening, and see you next time.